Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the official UK Drummer Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Mark, and today I speak with session drummer Brendan Buckley. Brendan has played with people such as Shakira, JJ Ling, Tegan and Sarah, Miley Cyrus, Lauren Hill, Gloria Estefan, DMX, the list goes on and on and on. You can find out more about Brendan at brendanbuckley.com. But for now, let's jump straight into it. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the one, the only, my good friend, Brendan Buckley. It's Travis, how's it going? It's going well, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you, can you hear me? Sure. Firstly, thank you so much for your time, Brendan, and um, I know we've done this before, but uh, as mentioned just before we started the interview, there might be a few questions we have to rehash. So what I like to do with all the guests on the podcast is just get a bit of an introduction. If you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about who you are, who you've played for, and what attracted you to sort of drumming in the first place, uh, that would be appreciated. Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Brendan Buckley. I'm an L.A.-based, Los Angeles-based drummer, um, but I grew up in the New York area. Uh, that's where I was born and raised. Uh, let's see. People most know me from being the drummer for Shakira. I've been doing that band for, I'm going to have to say, 18 years now, uh, longer than most people think. So I've been uh, a member of her band uh, studio, touring, etc. for quite a while. But along the way, whenever she takes a break or is on some type of hiatus, I, I hop on another tour or, or I have plenty of producer friends that I work for uh, pretty internationally now. So, But uh, recently, let's see, the current, the current uh, artist with whom I'm working is Tegan and Sarah. They're uh, two twin Canadian sisters that I'm playing with. And prior to that, I was working with a Brazilian uh, legendary artist named Roberto Carlos. And before that, a country artist named Shelby Lynn. And I did two Asian pop tours with um, a guy named Lee Hong Wang and another artist named JJ Lin. And before that, there was work with uh, Damien Rice. I did a tour with Damien Rice. Uh, and oh, goes kind of goes on and on. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to just be recommended to different projects whenever they open up. Um, actress named Leighton Meester, another actress named Minnie Driver, uh, and um, I guess the luckiest thing is that you know somehow they keep calling me back. So even if they only do a three three week tour or a two month tour four years goes by and then they call me back again saying, hey, we're going to put something together. Are you available? So I think uh, I feel lucky that uh, the, the people that I work for, um, they call me back. So that's how I guess my career has built over time. Cool. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, we'll we'll uh, delve into your past in, in a couple of seconds, but Often um, I, I kind of get these emails through the website, always about gigging, and uh, you, you get guys asking, what's the best way to get gigs? What's the best way to keep gigs? Now, you've obviously kept many of these gigs that you just mentioned, so tell us what you think you know, is 
big no-nos or, or things that people maybe take for granted but really shouldn't be taken for granted, especially while playing for people as a hired gun. Yeah, I guess uh, that's a good uh, way to phrase it is uh, don't take it for granted because these are things that might seem obvious, but they're not obvious to some musicians. Um, some musicians think as long as I can play the drums, I'm going to work. And that's not necessarily true because playing drums is only part of it. It's actually a very small part of your day if you're on tour. You might spend one or two hours a day playing the drums, and the other two, 22 hours you are in dressing rooms, uh, hotels, airplanes, restaurants, uh, um, and so on. So part of the, the things that are important are you're part of a group. Uh, more than just the musicians on stage, you're part of the, the quote-unquote tour. Whether it's eight people or 80 people, uh, you're kind of moving around in a, in a group of people, and uh, so everyone has a job, and your job is to play the drums, but also show up, have the songs memorized, uh, be as hassle-free as possible. And um, so these are, if, you're, if you want to do your job well, you have to consider all of these factors. Um, there's a tour manager who's probably very stressed out trying to get you from point A to point B. So if you can make their job easier, they like you. If you make their job more difficult, they don't want you and they would like to replace you. So uh, if, if, if you can make the job easier by making sure that you show up all the time and you're not late and, and it's, you have a passport and you have the right clothes and you're, you have the right gear and um, all of these things, it makes, it makes a tour manager's job easier. And I also feel like um, if artists in general, if you're a hired gun, you're working for an artist usually. And artists tend to be very stressed out, focused a lot on their careers. So if you can help them alleviate some of that stress by doing a good job and being almost like a band therapist in some ways, just making sure that everyone is chilled, comfortable, confident, um, that helps. That goes a long way. I feel like drummers have a unique position on stage where they can kind of be in the background yet be in control of everything on stage. So as far as tempos, dynamics, set lists, count offs, um, you can kind of control all that, which would make a singer's job a lot easier or an artist's job a lot easier. They can lean on your shoulder a lot more. So I think that's something that I've learned over time and that's really helped me uh, along the way is that I, I tend to make vocalists very comfortable or band leaders very comfortable or th that being said musical directors also if there's an MD in the band and that makes you valuable then they, then they think of you from time to time every uh, future job they say oh so and so was so good on the last gig I'd like to use him in the future mm. so um, that, that's kind of um, that, that's, that's the way I look at it cool cool good answer so now let's um, go backwards a little bit. So tell us when the drum bug first bit you. Mm, that, that's interesting. I have to think back. Uh, I think I started playing the drums probably in eighth grade. Uh, and I think at the time I'd already been playing, studying piano and trumpet in the school band, but MTV was really big back then. Uh, I mean, the MTV that used to show music videos, yeah. that was really big <laughs> back then. So 
I come ho- I come home from school and I'd watch Van Halen videos and James Addiction videos and all these things, and I I'd, I'd be staring at the drummer the whole time, thinking that's cool. That's not a piano and that's not a trumpet. That's something else, and I want to do that too. And uh, um, the the middle school that I went to had a drum set in the band room that no one was using. Uh, so I would go down there on lunch periods. I'd like eat a quick grilled cheese sandwich, then go down to the band room and, and play for 20 minutes before my next class started. So then I think when I went to high school in the United States, I, between eighth and ninth grade, you switched to high school. Um, that's when I really decided I want to do this a lot more. So I, I joined a band uh, playing drum set, percussion, orchestral percussion, marching band, the jazz band. I got a drum teacher. His name was Tommy Igo. Uh, and um, I kind of never looked back since, but that was that was when I started. Cool. And let's talk about Tommy for a second, because I know you mentioned him the last time I interviewed you. But let's go a little bit more into detail, because I, I love his drumming. Tell us about a typical drum lesson with Tommy Igo. Okay, yeah, when I first met him, it was through my high school band director. I had a band director who was teaching the wind ensemble, concert band, the jazz band, and I told him, I'm really digging the drums, but I feel like I can only teach myself so much. Uh, You know, I was trying to learn all these grooves from different records, and I can only get so far on my own. So he's like, I'm going to hook you up with a a teacher I know. So he introduced me to Tommy, and uh, and he was a difficult teacher right off the bat, uh, kind of like a drill sergeant, I have to say. And we joke about it now, but he was pretty hard on me. and But hard on me in a way where I think it really helped me. Mm. I think I was a little, I had a, you know, skateboarding, mohawk punk that didn't take anything too seriously. And uh, Tommy taught me to take something seriously for once. And uh, so the lessons we, we did, we would focus on, there would be definitely a large amount of time on a drum pad working on rudimental stuff. He had something called the Lifetime Warm-Up, which is a, um, a warm-up that kind of goes through all the basic rudiments in a, in a sequence. So we would add a new rudiment every week, and uh, the warm-up just became longer and longer until it was uh, 15 or 20 minutes long. So that was the, the, the opening of our lessons. And then we would do a lot of sight reading, uh, different kind of rhythm books, snare drum solo books. We would do soloing like that. Um, once again, still on the on the on the drum pad, a lot of counting out loud, and uh, then we would do drum set stuff. The drum set stuff would be focused on um, a little bit of pop rock playing, uh, like a lot of bass drum variations over hand patterns, uh, and then we'd also do a lot of jazz playing, which would be a lot of uh, you know steady ride cymbal and comping with the left hand or left hand and foot. And then learning how to set up figures like hit accents and do fills leading into accents. And he was big on learning Latin grooves back then too. So we would study a lot of Brazilian and Afro-Cuban grooves on the drum set. Uh, And this is all when I was 15, so it was all way over my head. Mm -hmm. But he was giving me what he called uh, a crash course in drumming. He was like, "Um, I'm going to give you as much stuff as I think you can ingest. So he would just throw stuff at me and, and my lessons would go way over an hour I mean they were supposed to be an hour long but sometimes they would go three hours long he, he would say um, just show up with a, a hamburger fries and a coca-cola and I'll teach you way over an hour so yeah we would go all night sometimes 
And and he turned me on to a lot of different things. Like the first time I ever heard Dennis Chambers was him playing playing me a, a CD and all these. We you know we'd study fusion too and things. But um, and he also prepared me for um, going to music school because I went to a conservatory at University of Miami and, and he kind of got me as far as he could in a, in a short amount of time uh, to go to that music school. And. Um... I mean, obviously, you you spend a lot of time on the road doing all these different tours with all these different artists. So uh, I've, I've kind of got two questions in relation to that. One, when you're on the road, uh, I mean, I've seen on your, your pictures on Facebook and stuff, you seem quite interested in fitness and health. I know you do the martial arts thing and stuff like that. But um, how, do you, how do you try to stay healthy while on the road? That's my first question. My second question is, while on the road, do you still try and find some kind of way to practice, even if it's not behind a drum kit? Like, do you ever sit there with a pad, um, or do you ever just try and work out things in your head? Do you try to visualize things? What's your method? Uh, yeah, for the for both of those questions, it's yes and yes. I, I really uh, focus a lot on health and nutrition, and I also... Um, make sure that I spend some time every day with sticks in my hands uh, working on something. Um, and both of these things uh, happen in varying degrees depending on my lifestyle and the amount of work I have to do every day. But I've, I've always been uh, kind of a fitness geek. Uh, I like, I read a lot about health and nutrition and diets and uh, so I'm always looking for, you know, good food to eat and healthy food to eat and I'm always and I avoid all the bad stuff and I always hit the hotel gyms whenever there's a gym in any hotel that I'm staying in I make sure I spend anywhere from 15 minutes to two hours there uh, you know but I go almost every day uh, it's that kind of uh, idea that if you do a little bit every day it's a lot better than cramming a bunch into one day a week and um, so I, I believe in that and I also, yeah, one of my hobbies is to study martial arts. So I do that when I'm in L.A., but since I travel so much, I've started to take it upon myself to just search different kinds of academies and dojos along the way and write them kind emails asking if I can join their club for a day while I pass through town. And every, it's like a brotherhood, so everyone's always very welcoming and they're always willing to open their doors and beat you up for a day. And that's what it feels like. Yeah, you know, um, I'm here in New Jersey, and I went to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym last night that's not too far from here. And yeah, it's it's fun. It's, it's a great workout, but it's also, I feel like it's practical because you're learning self-defense and real-life fitness as opposed to, um, you know, unreal fitness that you'll never use. I'm all about, you know, learning things that would actually give you better posture and better cardio and better health throughout the rest of your life, you know, not just building certain body parts, uh, you know, to look good with your shirt off, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I can go on and on, on and on about fitness. I never think I'm doing enough because I always uh, look at different friends of mine who are excelling in different athletic abilities, you know. Uh, but that's life. You know, you can, um, you can only work on so much in 24 hours. Yeah. And as far, and that, that kind of carries over to the same thing with practicing. Uh, there are times where I've, I can practice for eight hours straight and there are times where I just, it's not possible. There's no way I'm going to ever be able to do that this month because uh, of work. Mm. So, uh, 
things that I really, really need to work on. And usually those things are learning songs for gigs, uh, whether that means uh, charting out songs and, and going through them or memorizing songs or um, focusing on the styles of music that the genres that they're in, you know, if, if it's more of a bebop thing or a funk thing or an electronic thing, I have to kind of change my mode of thinking just a little bit uh, to prepare myself for something. If there's more double kick stuff coming up or more, you know, busy, busy hand stuff, you know, I just try to get, get my body in shape for the gig that I'm about to do. And because I freelance and I hop around a lot, I'm always shifting gears very often. And I, I like to warm up before shows. I like my, for my hands and feet to feel very limber and agile. So I, I, I try to spend a bit of time every day prior to any show or recording session just, um, you know, just loosening up. Like it's not just a, a drum pad the half hour before I go on stage. I'll, I'll actually, if I have a recording session at 10 a.m., I'll usually get up at 8 in the morning and just practice a little bit before I even go to the studio because I don't want to be waking up on the drum set that day. I want to be... I want to walk in the door awake and ready to play. So that's mm. just uh, the way I feel. Um, but everyone's different. Some drummers can not touch sticks for a month and then sit in at, at a sit in at a jam session and just tear it up. You know, yeah. I feel like I, I feel better. I feel better when I'm playing a little bit every day. I feel uh, like I have some momentum and I feel very comfortable. Um, but that, those are just sort of maintenance style practicing. But then there's the practicing where I'm actually trying to knock down barriers and improve and become a, a better artist, you know. That's another thing. And I still work on all that stuff, too. I'm, I'm always uh, trying to transcribe new grooves and work on new approaches to drums and different genres that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm totally hot in this genre or that genre. So uh, I feel like that's a, a never-ending quest, though. I'm going to be doing that till I give up. Yeah. Completely, it's it's a lifelong studying, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your influences. Who um, who were some of your influences or inspirations be- when you first started? Who are they now? And if they're not all drummers, what else motivates you? Mm, that's good. Yeah. Let's see. Way back when, if I think about when I was a kid, I really liked a lot of rock music, a lot of punk rock music, hardcore music, prog rock. So, uh, let's see, I, I was a huge fan of The Police, and I loved every single song that Stuart Copeland recorded with The Police. And I liked rock band, like uh, punk bands like Fugazi. I remember I listened to those first three records and tried to emulate all those grooves. And I went through a rush period. I was a big uh, Van Halen fan. Um, let's see. Then, you know huge Mitch Mitchell fan because I liked uh, Jimi Hendrix experience I really liked uh, Bonham when I discovered how awesome he was uh, that's kind of where it started at least um, a lot of a lot of those things um, you know that was back when I was 14 years old though and I, I loved the cure I really liked the, one of the drummers they had in their band Boris Williams I, think, I thought he came up with such interesting drum patterns and um, I don't know. There's lot, lots, lots more bands like that I can keep on naming. But and then when I started kind of branching out of that and studying other things, then I discovered people like um, 
but where do I start? Uh, Buddy Rich, uh, Tony Williams, uh, those uh, Philly Joe Jones. Those are like my three favorite jazz drummers right there. And then uh, I really liked a lot of Brazilian music and Latin music. I really got into Dennis Chambers, uh, a little bit of Vinnie Caliuta. I I loved uh, oh, and then then I somehow started my uh, lifelong love for Steve Gadd, who is still my favorite drummer today. I mean, back then I started getting into him, and now I like him more than ever. So he's he's one of my idols. I mean, he's a lot of people's idols, but I, I like him for so many reasons uh, because of his his feel, his his ability to play multiple genres, his sound, his uh, taste. I just love everything about him. And there, and drummers that I check out now, um, I, I'm, I always uh, tip my hat off to all the great studio drummers, uh, past and present, you know, guys like Hal Blaine to Jeff Picaro, uh to guys now like Matt Chamberlain and um, uh, Victor Andrizzo, Sean Pelton, Steve Jordan. Uh, these are some of my the guys I like to listen to now. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't. I guess it's just because of the way my career has changed. I don't listen to drumming for the sake of drumming as much as I used to. I listen to more functional drumming, like guys who are very successful at making lots of records for other people. Mm. Uh, admire those kinds of people. Um, Aaron Sterling is another one. Uh, a friend of mine named Craig McIntyre. I love his drumming. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of those guys now. But there are certain drummers, drummers that I I freak out over still. Uh, I, I really like um, DeAnthony Parks, uh, Nate Wood, Mark Juliana, Zach Danzinger, uh, Jojo Mayer, those those guys, they all seem like they kind of started in a, in a similar place and branched off into different worlds, but uh, I think their approach to drum set is so interesting. Mm. Um, I get together with a friend of mine named Dave Elich uh, from LA, and he just uh, kind of always, I always show up with a bunch of questions asking, like, dude, how did they do this? How, did, how is this done? How is this done? He turns me on to a lot of um, music that I've never checked out before. A lot of um, kind of, uh, I guess it would be more, I don't know what you call it. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, speed metal or whatever. I mean, I've, I've been listening to a lot of Meshuggah lately, a band called Gojira. Um, yeah, just these bands with really great drum parts, uh, really insane ability uh i don't know um how about you what have you been listening to lately uh lately if i'm honest i am i've been uh i've been on a bit of a beatles and uh, a prince trip the last kind of i guess year so i've I've just been going through their like back catalog and uh hmm, Uh new stuff i'm I'm big into a band called biffy claro do you know who biffy claro are no. Yeah, they they like they're quite they they like huge this side of the of the world and like Europe they'll sell out like arenas and everything. But it seems like America they haven't quite cracked it. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. But um, it's just uh, most of the American guys I talk to don't know much about them. Um, and then um, just yeah, sort of, but I, but I find that fascinating though that that you can travel around the planet and go 
different parts of the world and they're huge acts from a certain part of the world that don't transfer to other parts, you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous, eh? It's like what what makes some acts sort of that special that they just dominate the entire planet and then others kind of just certain um, territories. It's a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Well, that band shouldn't feel bad because, I mean, look at someone like Robbie Williams never made it in, in the U.S. You know? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, someone that, that large... People still don't know him in the U.S., which is astonishing. I remember Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue yeah, was Kylie never Minogue. big in the U.S. Crazy. She was big. Yeah, she was big everywhere. Yeah, so I'm kind of listening to them, and then um, I'm big into a band called Billy Talent. I'm big into Foo Fighters, stuff like that. So I, I quite like I like everything. It depends on the day, you know. Um, uh-huh. You know what it's like. I mean, you mentioned Stuart Copeland. He's got to be one of my favorites right there, you know. But, do, you have a, do you have a favorite Prince album now that you've been mentioning him? Well, you know, I recently got a copy of... Um, I've been trying to get it for ages, and uh, it's so difficult because they, they were only released in a certain numbers before they were pulled pulled off the market. But I recently got a copy of um, The Undertaker. It was like this seven-track EP that um, him and two dudes recorded at like 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. It's all live. And um, it just went out in like a cardboard sleeve, and it, it was originally... Um, to accompany the Guitar World magazine, but um, I guess, oh, I, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess through um, certain publishing rights or whatever, it got pulled. So there were like a few thousand floating out there in the world, and they were just quite hard to get. And uh, thankfully, um, I managed to get a copy. I've been trying to get a copy for about three years, and and um, I got a copy. And man, it's just incredible. It's like. How those guys could just play like that, just with such feel and such, um, it's just, it's intense, man. It's, it's really cool, you know? It's really, uh-huh. really cool. You should check it out. I'll, um, I'll send you, a, I'll send you the name of it when we're off, off the podcast or whatever, you know? That's cool. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, I went through a, like a vicious Prince phase for a while. I, that was probably like, maybe around 1995 to 98 or something where I just listened to everything like like it was a, like a religious experience for me. Yeah. I had the same thing with the Beatles too. Yeah, I, cool. I went through a period where a friend of mine let a friend of mine let me five records and uh, the ones from Rubber Soul through um, Abbey Road, I guess. And uh, I pretty I think I listened to those five records for a year yeah. straight and nothing else. And uh, I'm, yeah, it became um, kind of just, I, you know what, I, I tell people this, um, you know, I think everyone loves Ringo Starr by now. I know there was there was a time where people were saying, oh, he's not that good, but whatever. Yeah. Let's not even talk about that. But the point is, that if you want to just study drumming, and you need to know Ringo Starr vocabulary. Yeah. Because those, those, be- those beats and fills are applicable almost every recording session I've done since I, I learned them. If you just learn the, the fills on Strawberry Fields Forever and A Day in the Life, you can kind of throw them almost on every song you play for the rest of your life because they're perfect. Yeah. And um, it, it's, like, it's, like, it's like learning something like a paradiddle. Learn all of the Ringo Starr fills because they all are great and they work everywhere. Yeah, and you know, the thing is as well, like... You're right. Um, drummers in particular, they, they tend to put Ringo down a little bit too quickly. But the truth of the matter is, to get that feel, it's, it's, it's the same as kind of playing along with a Stevie Wonder record, right? The, the feel is the hard part. The, 
the the grooves and the fills aren't hard it's the feel that's that's what you you got to go for and and a lot of guys just can't get it i mean you you just walk into a local pub sometime and go see a, a standard sort of pub band and you'll see a lot of those guys can't get that feel right and it's like it's easy to kind of knock these guys because they were maybe playing parts that might be i don't know regarded as too easy nowadays but but it's like that's not what's great about it it's the feel of it man it's just i, I can't describe it it's <laughs> it blows my mind you know yeah that that that's 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 part of something that i like to study a lot is when i really get into a style of music or a, or a certain drummer or a couple drummers in a certain genre i kind of go for everything that they were going after for a little while i try to get like oh how did they sit how did they hold the sticks how did they tune their drums differently in that that small time period and and then go for a feel like you said where I, if I wanted to apply this to another style of music, you know, how can I how can I draw upon that in ways where I'm not actually playing that song or trying to mimic them perfectly, but I what is the essence that I could take onto something else? You know, you just um, and I do that with all different styles of music. I mean, I did that with uh, John Bonham for a while and Rolling Stones and uh, the Who and. Hendrix and Beatles, but then also with Stax music, Motown, uh, you know, because, you know, someone will say like, hey, you know, kind of do like a, a Mitch Mitchell-y thing here, when they don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. So you have to be able to under, understand what they mean and how that would apply to a, a record being made in 2016, because yeah. it doesn't really apply well. So you have to figure out what essence or feel you can borrow from and put it into this modern Completely, completely. No, man, it's... Uh, People it's... love saying, uh, go, go crazy, do, do a Keith Moon thing. But you're like, well, there's a lot of things that aren't going to work, but let me give you something that will work that's a very Keith Moon-esque feel or style, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, things like that. Yeah, man. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, we'll get, we'll get into your involvement with, like, Shakira and Tegan and Sarah now, but... Have you ever had a dream gig that that, or, or you're still hoping there's a, a dream gig that you're hoping to achieve someday? That that's changed over the years. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess that it's only logical that would change over years. I mean, probably when I was in college, I would have loved to uh, play with someone like John Schofield mm -hmm. because I was so into both Dennis Chambers and Bill Stewart, and uh, I just loved every band that. Uh, guitarists like John Schofield will put together. So I'm like, oh my God, that'd be my dream gig. And then maybe uh, when I first got out of college, I was probably thinking, oh, if I could ever play with Sting or Peter Gabriel or Prince or someone like that, that would be a dream gig, you know? Mm. But, you know, now, even, even, even I don't even feel that way now. I, I think about maybe a couple of years ago, I would have said, uh, I would have really loved to uh, play with Nine Inch Nails yeah. or Depeche Mode or something like that. Uh, tours like that that are super high production and um, the tracks are great. They're playing along with machines, but there's still a live drummer on stage that's really keeping it organic and grooving. And uh, I really love seeing those types of concerts live. And I would always, I always thought, you know, if the universe worked out in a certain way and the stars aligned i would i get to play with uh depeche mode or nine inch nails or something like that but now you know i don't know 
if you ask me today, I wouldn't even know who, who to mention, you know. Hmm. I'm not sure. But th- those are the people I've thought about in the past. Cool, cool. I've gotten to work with some really great singers yeah. over the years, and I sometimes just being on stage with a great singer knocks me out. Like, uh, it doesn't matter who it is, but there's something about being a drummer behind someone who has a, like, a just, like, God-given vocal cords. Mm. Uh, Shelby Lynn was one. Working with Shelby, and I, I just being in her in her practice space, running through songs, I would get chills. Hmm. I'm like, well, I am so lucky to be playing right now with this person. Just because uh, this is like a once in a lifetime voice she has. Uh, there was a guy I used to play with way back when in Miami named Nilla N I L L A R A. He's got a insane voice, and I remember way back then, just his feet, his vo- voice was so good. Yeah, there, there, there's there's periods like that. Um, where it's just sharing the stage with someone who has that vocal ability can really knock you out. Yeah, completely. So let's talk about um, Shakira for a second. Tell us how your involvement came about with that gig. That started when I was living in Miami and I graduated from the university at that point, the music school, but I was still working a lot in, in the neighborhood. And a friend of mine who was a, an engineer and a producer called me up to say he was going to be recording some tracks for some Colombian artist that was passing through town and asked me if I could come by and throw drums on a song. So I did that. Uh, they liked it. I did a second song like that. I did two more, another one. I wound up playing on half the record and it wound up being a Shakira record. And, uh, you know, that was nine, 1998. And uh, I think because of the sound of the record and the musicians who were playing on the record, they really liked the vibe. So they said, let's put a band together with some of these people. So I, I became part of a, a band that did the CD release parties and the, um, the MTV Unplugged that was related to that album. And I did the tour that was related to that album. And that kind of became the core band that she still has today. Uh, the guitarist, keyboardist, and and me, we've been in that band uh, for 18 years, yeah. You know, we, we had, had people come and go, depending on if we need to get a new bassist or a new background singer or a new percussionist, but it's been, uh, the, the three of us, we've been her backing band forever. Cool. Well, it, it, goes, to, to, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it's, You've done the job well, and you you're not stepping on toes, and you you're doing what's required, and it's you're obviously doing it well, so it's good, man. Good for you. Thank you. Now you're on the road with um, Tegan and Sarah. So how did that come about? Because they they kind of blowing up. Like I'm meeting people almost every other week who who just tell me that like they're the new favorite thing, and it's weird because had had you told me about them six months ago. And, you know, maybe I was living under a rock, but I hadn't heard of them until about six months ago. And uh, now I just can't not see them or hear them every time I go on social networks. So how'd that involvement yeah. come about? Uh, this came uh, through their musical director. Um, he, call, he contacted me saying they were looking for a new drummer and would I come and meet them? I said, is it like an audition? Or like, it's not even an audition. They just say they want to meet you. And so I, I went over uh, Sarah's house. Uh, we chatted for a while, and she said, "Great, uh, would you be interested in working with us for the next year or two? And I said, "Sure." 
And I get, then I got a phone call from their manager just to hash out the details, and that's it. So that came from a recommendation of the person that was putting together the band, the, 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 the arrangements in the band, this musical director, who happens to be a, he's a very busy guy who does a lot of, you know, he's, you know, Katy Perry's musical director and a couple other major acts right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's good to know people that, that are willing to throw your name in a hat. That's, that's all I can say, you know, because, uh, that's pretty much how most of my gigs come around is from some, uh, MD or artist or producer or bassist or keyboardist who, who thinks of me when there's a vacancy and says, Hey, may, maybe you want to give this guy a call. Mm. That's pretty much it. I don't do a whole lot of out of nowhere auditions. They usually come through recommendations. Cool. So what advice could you give uh, anybody listening to this on just networking more, getting out there more? Like, you know, some people don't know where to start. So what advice would you give in that regard? Yeah, um, some some people don't know where to start and some other people don't know where when to stop. I feel like yeah, some people network too much to the point where it, it's kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a turnoff. And some people don't network enough where you don't know if they still have a pulse or not. Mm. So uh, I think uh, trying to find a nice, uh, balance is is important. Uh, of course, this should be. I should say that I believe that being able to play is the most important part of this whole thing. Even a, even part of your networking. If you can't back it up with good playing, then you're really you're, you're selling snake oil. You know. Yeah. So you know, always working on always working on your playing and being honest with what you can and cannot do stylistically or genre wise, whatever. Being what you, what you're good at, and then networking. I think it starts from uh, a person to person thing first. I think you need to be playing with other musicians. I think you need to be watching other musicians, like meaning uh, go to their shows or their jam session. I think you need to be grabbing coffees or breakfast with other musicians, uh, chatting with them face to face. And I'm not talking about like, you know, following someone's blog or something like first, first of all, it has to be a lot of face to face time with other musicians and a true, genuine, honest, uh, camaraderie. And I think, uh, in LA, I think that exists where there are tons and tons and tons of great drummers, very few jerk offs. You know, Mm -hmm. most guys are, are cool, welcoming brotherly saying hey come to my gig we'll hang and and things like that uh it becomes a big network of all of drummers all trying to help each other out you know uh, if you need a gig I'll, I'll if i i'll try to find one for you or i need you to fill in for me or something like that uh i'm i feel very fortunate that la is filled with great drummers who are also very generous and um i think that's the first step to networking all that other stuff, like you know, making sure that you have a website or Facebook or Instagram, uh, that is to me that's icing on the cake. Because mm. I know really fantastic drummers who don't have a social media presence and work constantly because they have they have a cell phone and an email address. You can phone when you need them, and they are dependable and safe, and uh, they keep on getting calls. Yeah, you know. So I think sometimes I get turned off by the guys who over-advertise uh, things that they can bear, you know. Um, so that's, I think 
age we're living in right now. I don't know if it'll change. That's the current age yeah. that we're living in. So, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, I only bring this up because people do ask a lot about networking and everyone does it differently. Uh, and, and I, I uh, try to find some kind of uh, happy balance that suits my personality. That's cool. So let me ask you this, and uh, I, I ask most of the guys that I, I talk to, uh, just, just just trying to get different opinions, really. What are your thoughts on the whole YouTube drummer phase thing? Um, in what way? I don't know. Do you do you think there's too too many drummers just trying to show their chops on YouTube? Do you think? that uh, some of the stuff should maybe not be up there? Do you think that it's good uh, as like an online CV? Or do you think that maybe it doesn't mean anything? Is it just drumming karaoke? Like, what are, what are your thoughts, you know? I guess, uh, you know what? I, in, 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 the, in life, in general, uh, you know, everything works as a supply and demand, right? Uh, by nature, so I hardly ever blame the suppliers as much as I do the demanders. So it's uh, if uh, if there's a really, really, really crappy beverage that's out there and it's super popular, it's not the people that make the beverage that is the problem. It's the fact that everyone's buying it and drinking it all the time, and mm-hmm. that's the problem. So I, I so if people want to videotape themselves and put it up on the internet that's fine if you're great that's fine if you have something important to say that's fine if it's terrible that's also fine Mm. and if it's horrible that's fine i think uh it's a problem when it uh you know when certain people find certain things more valuable than others i guess that's hard hard to control but you know, I, I only know that I spend a little time on YouTube, not a lot. I don't spend, I'm not there for hours a day going through different kinds of, uh, you know, uh, down the rabbit hole of different uh, drum videos. But I'll look up certain specific things. Like, I want to see this Vinnie Caliuta solo from 1983, and I'll watch it, and, and I'll be like, damn, that was amazing. Mm. And then I close my computer. Mm. You know, I don't need to watch everyone's. Uh, and I, um, and I, uh, I, I kind of just specifically search out really good stuff or things that friends will recommend to me. Like, did you see this? Wow, this Tony Williams solo from 1978, it's insane. And I'll watch it and I'm like, thank you for sending that to me. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I feel like that way I can't knock YouTube and drum videos on YouTube because I'm only seeing the best stuff. Because I look up specific things, or friends of mine send me the the greatest stuff that's on the internet. Um, but I guess, like you said, from what I've heard, there's a lot of crappy stuff out there. I just don't watch it. Mm. Um, and I and it's you know it's it's supposed to be a, an open platform, so they have the right to put up crappy stuff that they want. Yeah, true. Um, I, I I think it's it's strange when um, I just. You know, I don't ever want to be the kind of guy who knocks technique or flashy playing because I kind of dig that too. If I see someone blaze through double bass stuff or this crazy polyrhythmic pattern, 
I'll, I'll, I'll be the first guy to say, wow, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think that's functional drumming either. Mm. So I, I usually separate the two. I separate what I consider useful functional drumming and then interesting flashy drumming. And I like both. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not a hater. I, I like it. But I separate them. You know, and I, I was talking to a friend of mine not too long ago about this, and, and I said it's like, it's like, you know, if you take the sport of basketball, there are guys who play basketball really well. They're on a professional team, and they've won multiple championship rings uh, along with their teammates by playing amazing basketball and defeating all the other great basketball players out there. And then there are guys who can do really crazy tricks with a basketball, like crazy slam dunks and spins and jumps and things like that. That's something different. Yeah. It's also impressive. Yeah. I'll, I'll watch a slam dunk contest and be like, wow, that was amazing what that guy did. He threw it around his back, threw his legs, did three spins in the air and slammed it. That's amazing. But has that guy won any championships with a team yet? No. There's a, two different things. So I, I, sometimes I look at drums as two different things, like what some freakazoid drummer can do on YouTube and what Jim Keltner does are two different things. Yeah, completely. And uh, because of my career, I tend to gravitate more towards what Jim Keltner does because that benefits my career, the, the qualities that he has. Mm. You know, his, his time, his feel, his sound, his, his studio... Uh, mature approach to drumming, you know, and then the flashy stuff is interesting. I love it. I'm, I'm turned on, but I ask my friends, what's that? But I don't really spend a majority of my day worrying about that because that doesn't affect my career at all. Mm. Good answer, man. Great answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Um, okay, Brendan, i got two more questions for you, man. Um, the first one is uh, regarding endorsements. Um, and I've brought this one, this particular question up on a few interviews as well. Um, just because uh, I go to a lot of drum clinics, I go to a lot of jam sessions, I go to a lot of gigs in general. <clears throat> and I meet, I meet some, I, I'm going to use the word younger drummers, but I don't mean that in terms of their age. I just mean I've been drumming for a while and they might have not been drumming for as long as I have. And... I too have a couple endorsements and this always seems to come up in topic when you're talking and often the attitude seems to be, oh, can't you get me an endorsement? And you kind of go, uh, no, like th that's got nothing to do with me. And some of them seem to have this, uh, the stigma that the more sort of branding or product placement or just endorsements behind your name the more they seem to maybe think that you're going to be working and that's not the case so i wanted to get your opinion on it what what's uh, what 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 would you sort of say to our listeners out there who maybe think that that's how it works what would you say to them how you think endorsements work um interesting i think there's two different things that you said in that statement that I, we could one is you know the reality of an endorsement and um, look, people have to look at it like it's a partnership with a company that makes musical instruments. So say uh, I endorse DW Drums, okay? Uh, I'm friends with all those people. They make drums. If they don't sell a certain amount of drum sets a year, they will go out of business. Everyone will get laid off. 
it's an actual factory and a company. It's not just this magical tree that has drum sets and they give them away to people. It's a company that has employees and they have to make a profit every year or they'll go out of business. Mm. So for me to just call up DW and say, hey, I want everything you make in every color for free by the end of the month, that's not gonna work for them. So uh, I have to go into a relationship with a company saying uh, they value me as a drummer and I value them as a company and we say to each other, how can we help one another? Mm. You know, and, and they can outfit me with a drum set for my next tour and by doing that, I will make sure that every magazine photo shoot I do, uh, every stage I'm on, every TV show I do has a DW logo on it and that way the, the, the drum set is visible all the time. It becomes synonymous with drums and, and and when people go to buy new drum sets, they, you know what, I've been seeing a lot of DW kits around. Must be really good. I'm gonna try one of those. And they go to a guitar center or something and they play that and they like it and they buy it. So by DW giving me one drum set, maybe they will sell 100 or 500, I don't know. So that's, that's the partnership we go into. They help me out, I help them out. And I do that with Roland Electronics, with Sabian Cymbals, Big Frith Drumsticks, Remo Drumheads, LP Percussion, and on and on. Uh, cannabis snare wires, all sorts of things. Because um, there's a company that I really like their products, and, and we, we open up a conversation, a dialogue, and I say, how can we help one another? And I think most drummers in the beginning don't realize that and don't offer that. They just say, I'm playing in a band, give me free stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't work like that. It, it only works if you have something you can offer them that would help them move their product forward. So if you know that and you understand that, then you won't have problems getting the endorsements you need over time. You know? Yeah. And the second, the second thing you were saying was about branding, and I do think that's a little different. There is a funny thing where I know certain drummers that somehow, I don't think they play that great. I don't think they've worked that much. They don't have a, a big uh, resume. Yet they seem to have like a lot of advertisements in whatever, uh, music magazines or something like that. And it just might be, I don't know. It, it, that one to me is, is kind of funny. There are drummers out there who work constantly and you'll never see them in Modern Drummer or something like that. I don't know why. Mm. There are drummers who've had one gig. That gig was in 1983. That band already broke up a long time ago, yet they're still always doing advertisements and stuff. <laughs> and I think it's a little strange. But the only, re the only way I can, I can justify it is maybe that person still somehow sells product. Yeah, maybe. That person hasn't done anything important. That person hasn't done anything important in 20 years, but somehow by them doing an ad for that company, they will still push the product forward. So yeah. who am I to criticize? It, it works for them, but I think it's kind of funny because I always want to see the people that I think are either the best drummers or the most workingest drummers, the most successful guys out there, being the ones uh, featured the most, but it doesn't really work like that. It's the guys who seem to uh, have some kind of uh, popularity wave or something. Yeah. It's a little different. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, okay, Brendan, what has been the 
best piece of advice in regards to your musical career that you've ever received? I feel like I have so many, but here's one. Uh, one is uh, uh, a French horn teacher years ago told me, always play your best because you never know who's sitting in the audience. Mm. And I have, I t- I've taken that, uh, my 16-year-old self has taken that until now where I, no matter what the gig is, if it's some jam session or $25 pub gig, I still show up thinking like it's the most important gig of my career because you never know who's going to be sitting out there. Yeah. And someone's going to uh, say, wow, that's great. Can I, whatever, recommend you for something else or whatever. That's, that's uh, a piece of advice someone gave me once that it has become sort of a mantra for me. So I don't get lazy and take things for granted. Cool. It's not like I only try hard on the big gigs and I try very poorly on the, on the small gigs. I treat them all the same. Cool. I think you should. I think it's important. Um, all right, cool. Brendan Buckley, thank you so much, man. It's been um, an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad we got to do this. I know we've been trying for a while, but, uh, man, uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got, we got to make this happen. And, yeah, I'm not coming out, but uh, I guess I will be in London with Tegan and Sarah, I guess, toward the end of June if, if this comes out in time. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, man. In typical fashion, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to the podcast. Please remember to rate, review, share, follow, like, etc. I want to thank Brendan for his time. And we'll definitely get him back on the show sometime. Our next guest is going to be Zell K from Vodun, a London-based band that's killing it at the moment. And if you've never seen them live, you're in for a bit of a surprise. I would totally get to a show because they're about to blow up. Uh, But for now, keep it real. Let's listen to Albert Upside Down Bounce. Brendan, drumming us out. Peace.